Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. It's a pivotal time for women in the law in our country, not just because of the ever-expanding presence of women on the U.S. Supreme Court and other courts, but also because of the way the law affects American women's lives. Dahlia Lithwick, who covers the courts and the law for Slate, has a new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. She joins today to talk about that book and all of the issues swirling around women and the law. That's next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Democracy is not a passive sport. It's something that has to be constantly managed, persistently negotiated, something we always have to fight for. And that understanding is particularly important right now. In the last half decade or so, we have seen increasing attacks on important political institutions. And we've watched those institutions take some really big hits. Voter access is under assault on many fronts and in many states. And the idea that everyone's vote should count is still as likely to start an argument as it is to inspire. And, of course, we've also seen literal assaults on our institutions, on our capital, for instance. Multiple attempts to disrupt the democratic operations of state and congressional representatives. Now, there are a lot of people across the country and all across our state who are working to protect our democracy against these kinds of assaults. And increasingly, when you look, who's at the forefront of those efforts? Some of the most strident people, some of the most diligent organizers, some of the people who are working the hardest to bolster the democratic process and make it most inclusive are women. That's been particularly true since Donald Trump was elected president in 2016. Women came out in droves to run for office, to organize members of their communities, to vote, to defend the rule of law, and to be a more integral part of our democratic process, to be stopgaps against tyranny and illiberalism. Dahlia Lithwick is someone who has been charting much of this through her work at Slate. She writes about the courts and the law and hosts the podcast Amicus. And in her new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, Lithwick writes to uh, capture this moment and power that women have harnessed, oftentimes doing so as they stare down discrimination and condescension. 
to talk about women's changing roles in our politics, this new wave of engagement, and how women have used America's legal institutions to defend against authoritarianism. I'm really pleased to welcome Dahlia Lithwick back to Detroit today. Dahlia, it's great to have you here. Thank you, Stephen. I have to say, in all the years I've been coming on your show, that was the grimmest opener <laughs> you've ever served up. I'm just sitting here under the table, just shivering with the first Monday of October. <laughs> yeah, right. It is first Monday. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's interesting that you th- that you think that was grim because uh, so uh, the book. And the the stories you tell in the book are about heroes, and and it's it's this uplifting look at what women are doing. So I guess I don't. I mean, I feel grim about the attacks that that we're seeing <laughs> on democratic institutions, but I kind of see this book as a, a, a light shining on the idea that there is a fight underway, and there are heroes at the center of that fight, and so many of them are women. You know, that's exactly right. And I and I should um, really note that I think that even though we are, you know, staring down uh, what I feel like really are a bunch of existential challenges mm-hmm. to democracy and demo- democratic institutions, like you say, not just voting, you know, but the authority of the courts are really in question and this uptick in vigilantism around the country. And so I think in the face of that, it is absolutely true that one of the unsung stories is the ways in which the rule of law, the law itself, and as you say, the law in the hands of really highly trained, brilliant women lawyers have time and time again uh, proved kind of the, the path through that. And so the book is, in fact, an attempt to not just be hopeful about, you know, the the four years of what I thought was, you know, sustained assaults on the rule of law under Donald Trump, but a, as you know, even going forward into what feels like a really uncertain moment at the Supreme Court, uncertain um, moment around the upcoming elections that I think that we ignore sometimes the heroes who have used the law to fight back. And so it is, maybe it's it's not a completely triumphal book, it's, it's a <laughs> trepidatious book, but I think it's certainly a book that offers the law as a map and a blueprint. Yeah, yeah. So, so before we get to the specifics of the book, I do want to kind of pause and note that it is first Monday and in some ways it's a pretty important first Monday not just because of the cases that are that are on the docket and that we expect the court to to deal with this term but but because of the makeup of the court there are four women on the Supreme Court and that is enormous progress uh, from just 20 years ago uh, when when you know on first Monday you on you never had more than than two uh, at the same time the, the the court is more conservative now than it has been in more than half a century so there's there's I guess two sides to that but but I just want to have you talk about the importance of the fact that there are four women on the Supreme Court I mean, it's singular in every way. And um, the newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, was 
formally, uh, you know, uh, inducted in on Friday. She had had her investiture in the in the summer, but this was really the formal moment at which she became a part of the court. And you're quite right if you think about the fact that for centuries the court had no women. Yep. And for much of my career, you know, one and two women, uh, it is an extraordinary thing that nearly half the bench uh, is comprised of women. And, you know, now we have the first woman of color. So all of that is truly uh, pathbreaking and astounding for all of the reasons that I think we forget sometimes really matters, but that Justice Jackson in her comments on Friday really flicked at, which is, we need people around the country to look at the court and say, I could be there. I could do that. Mm. And as she said, you know, by taking a seat at the table, she was opening that possibility for young black girls around the country, just the way Sonia Sotomayor uh, opened the door, I think, for young Latina girls when she took the seat. So in one sense, I think you're exactly right that the court is now much more representative uh, demographically of the population that it serves. I think you're also right that it's a paradox that the court, by any metric with this six to three conservative supermajority, is the most conservative court we've seen in over a hundred years. And that obviously inflects on questions of race and gender and LGBTQ rights. So both things are happening. We have the most representative court in the history of the Supreme Court. We also, in a lot of ways, have a pretty revanchist court Mm -hmm. that is going after a lot of the sort of rights and freedoms of minorities in the country. And we have to hold those two ideas in our head at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I also want to talk about the inflection point that I think the Dobbs ruling has at this moment. I know that you have been working on this book for, uh, you know, a a lot longer than the court was even considering that case, obviously. Um, But but what a moment to have this book come out uh, about women pushing back against uh, the kind of authoritarianism uh, that we've seen in the last six or six years or or more. And at the very same moment, uh, the court eviscerates a right that not only has stood for almost 50 years, but but is so central to the agency that women have in the law. Yeah, it's interesting because the book, you know, you're quite right. I started writing it in 2017 and it opens uh, with oral arguments in another really seminal abortion case. Mm -hmm. In that case, it was whole women's health. And I describe it in the book as like, we were so close. It felt like the last amazing moment of near equality for women because there were suddenly three women uh, justices on the bench and Justice Stephen Breyer, who is a lifelong avowed feminist. And in Whole Women's Health, which only just happened in 2016, it was, first of all, just this rock'em, sock'em oral argument. It was so fun to witness what happens when, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg at some point forced Chief Justice John Roberts to give one of the women oral advocates extra time. I mean, it was just such a moment of we're close. We are approaching what looks like parity at the court. We're approaching what looks like women actually being seen and heard after, as I said, centuries 
of men making decisions about women, but women not being in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then you fa- and by the way, in Whole Women's Health, the court ended up producing this resounding, resounding opinion, not just in favor of women's equality and their dignity and their economic interests and their health interests, but also kind of piercing the idea that states could decide summarily, you know, we're going to close all the clinics in Texas and that's good for women's health. And it was such a singular moment because it really felt like we were proximate to Mm. something new. And then, boom, as you say, fast forward to 2022 and Dobbs. And we have an opinion from, you know, Justice Alito in which women are all but invisible. I mean, they're just not Mm. there. Their interests, their medical interests, the science, the history, it's all invisible. And there's a weird way to me at the book, you know, certainly is bookended by Whole Women's Health in 2016 on the one hand, Dobbs 2022 on the other. But the ways in which you can get so, so close and then slide back so Mm. far in the span of just a few years. So I think that's right for me. And I should just note, I had to massively rewrite the introduction (laughs) and the, and the um, epilogue, you know, in just the days after Dobbs. But I think for me, it's a useful marker of this tendency to go on screen save where you just think we're doing good. We're doing good. You know, we have the vote. We can have our own credit cards. You know, we don't have to hide our pregnancy at work the way RBG did. And then you blink an eye and women are in prison in Alabama for fetal endangerment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. She is a reporter who covers the courts for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. She's also the author of a new book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save uh, America. Um, So women have, of course, become a much deeper part of our legal and political infrastructure over the last few decades. But it's also true that this last six years uh, of life in America has seen a real, I guess, explosion of uh, women's interest in and activism around uh, politics and the law and uh, our culture. I wonder if you can kind of chart the the, the run-up to the Trump election uh, and what was happening for women before that. And then how that moment changes the trajectory in in, in such a dramatic way. I mean, it's so interesting to me that the single biggest and most important uh, protest is the Women's March, right, which happens just days after Trump is inaugurated. And to me, you know, we again, it seems like a thousand years ago, right? But whether it was like the pink hats or the, you know, funny T-shirts or the ways in which almost on a dime, you know, women not just traveled to D.C., but in every state, uh, women rose up to be visible, right, to say, I can't countenance that the president is somebody who is, you know, accused of multiple assaults on women, who talked about during the campaign jailing uh, uh, his opponent, who talked during the campaign about punishment for women who terminated pregnancies. And so there was, I think, right from the outset, this deep, deep sense that women had that it was incumbent on them to step in and organize and to be vocal. And, you know, we really saw that if you think about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you know, women in Handmaid's Tale uh, outfits protesting being arrested Mm -hmm. outside the Capitol. 
So there is a through line here. But I think maybe the other thing that I really tried to chart in the book, and I think this is sort of beneath your question, is the ways in which crowds that were chanting at Donald Trump rallies in 2016, lock her up, lock her up, Mm -hmm. that they were saying that about Hillary Clinton became chants of lock her up about AOC, about Nancy Pelosi, about Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, that by the end of the Trump era, there was a sense that the law, which made us equal and gave us dignity and allowed us to sort of thrive professionally and in every other way, you know, be equal, could be weaponized against women and that women felt that in their bones, that they felt even before Dobbs, that if the rule of law was kind of the thing that lifted us up and gave us freedom, it could just as easily be the thing that pushed us down and made us vulnerable. And, you know, you really are seeing that in Iran now in mm-hmm. the protests where, you know, clerics are, are, are responsible for women. You know, the, the morality police arresting women for the way they wear their headscarves. And, and I guess what I want to say is one through line for me through the book was women realizing that actually at the founding and during, you know, the time of the framing of even the 14th Amendment, women were not part of that process. They were carved out completely and they had to muscle their way in, you know, literally claw their way in to, you know, the founding documents, to the statutes, to the Constitution, and that just as easily they could be shut out as they were in the Dobbs decision with the kind of breezy, oh, well, you know, there's no, the word abortion doesn't appear in the Constitution. And I think that tension of having the law be the instrument of freedom and of oppression is very visceral and real to a lot of women. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Dahlia Lithwick about her new book and about the role women play in our politics and in the law. We want to hear from you as well. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the heroes that uh, Dahlia writes about in her book. Call and tell us who some of your female heroes are. How did they inspire you and in what ways? And have you been inspired by the things that have happened in this country over the last six years to take part in law or activism or politics in a way that was different than you did before? We want to hear your stories. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. She's also the author of a new book, Lady Justice, Women, Law, 
in the battle to save America. We're talking about the role that women are playing right now in our politics and in the law, how that's changed since Donald Trump was elected president, how it may change even more now that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade after nearly 50 years uh, of reproductive freedom being a central part of women's lives uh, in America. We, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Uh, Dahlia's book is about women who are best described as heroes, people who have taken it upon themselves to organize, to litigate, to run for office as a pushback against the kinds of things that we've seen come out of the Trump administration. Uh, Give us a call and tell us about people you think of uh, as heroes in that context, people you have seen stand up uh, in the last few years who inspire you. Uh, Also give us a sense if uh, you have been inspired to activism or work that looks different because of the things uh, that have gone on over the last six years, the things that uh, that former President Donald Trump seemed to, to usher in and, and make acceptable. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Um, so, Dahlia, your book discusses so many women who have defended and often expanded our democracy. We will not be get, able to get to all of them. But uh, I, I do want to start with uh, with one of my favorites, uh, Stacey Abrams, and the efforts she made to organize people in the state of Georgia uh, to get Democrats to not just register, but also to show up uh, and vote, to talk about the, the, the role that Stacey Abrams plays, not just in that state, but I think nationally what she's inspiring. It's true, Stephen. And, and in fact, Stacey Abrams is the last chapter of the book because I think what you said in that question is so essential, which is, you know, the book at least nominally, starts uh, as a book about women lawyers, women doing trials, you know, women litigating, but it expands out to women organizing, women doing, you know, massive, massive coalition building, women doing work that is legal, yes, but also deeply uh, political and organizational. And so, of course, it has to land in some sense on Stacey Abrams, who is a phenomenal lawyer, a phenomenal organizer, but as you say, also a not in terms of coalition building and in terms of messaging. And so, I am kind of in love with the fact that Stacey Abrams, you know, was a romance novelist, you know, <laughs> that not publishing under her own name is somebody who talks, you know, about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, it's just such a cultural avatar for all the ways in which women can be involved, that it doesn't have to just be kind of what you see on Law and Order, that it can be, as you said, you know, registering voters, uh, creating a machinery of voters. I don't think anyone disputes anymore that those two Georgia Senate seats uh, that flipped in the special election Mm -hmm. uh, in 2021 are credited to Stacey Abrams and the work she did. And I guess what I really love about Stacey Abrams is that this is, you know, a decades-long campaign. This isn't something she invented in 2020. It wasn't something she invented in her own gubernatorial run. It was a way of engaging and activating and exciting voters, particularly women and people of color who felt 
the government wasn't serving them and a way of getting them not just to show up and vote, because I think she would tell you that's just the first step, Mm. but getting them to understand that this process can serve them, not to give up on it, but that the only way to do that is become deeply, deeply involved. So it's not just one election. It's not just, uh, you know, the presidential election. It's every single election up and down the ticket. And I think that that's the kind of thinking that, in my view, is has to be the sea change, right? Yeah. That's why the book ends with her, is that we all need to be thinking about state and local officials. We all need to be thinking about elections boards and school boards, and that every single person needs to be activated and inspired. And so for me, Stacey Abrams, in some way, goes from being Lady Justice, you know, who's an attorney, who's brilliant, to somebody who understands that you can win all the cases in the world, but if you don't win democracy and politics, you still lose. Mm. And I think that's the moment we're in. Wow. Wow. I mean, you know, I I think of her often in the context of, I I guess, in two different contexts. One is, you know, this this tremendous organizing work that that she's been doing and the the things that are already starting to pay off as a result of that. I mean, the number of people who are showing up, again, not just to vote, but to, to, to participate in our democracy in many different ways. But then I kind of think of her separately in terms of her own political ambition and, and the the things she's run for. And, and I guess I feel like, I mean, she certainly hasn't been as successful at those yet, uh, and she could be. But I guess one doesn't necessarily depend on the other in my mind. In other words, the, the work she's doing to organize is is something that will stand forever uh, and certainly could grow into into even bigger uh, changes in in Georgia and, and all over the country. You know, if she were elected, uh, it would be it would be a really great milestone for that state. But but even if that doesn't happen, I feel like uh, it's important. But you seem to be saying that that in her mind, she does need that uh, that final kind of uh, achievement maybe of of winning in 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 one of these contests maybe i mean i think that you know stacy abrams when she ran against brian kemp was one of the first people who helped laid bare and materialize what voter suppression looked like, right? Mm-hmm. We we were talking about it as an abstraction. Mm-hmm. We kind of knew that, you know, voters were being purged from the rolls. We knew that, you know, uh, precincts in heavily black, you know, heavily urban uh, neighborhoods were being summarily closed, that people were standing in longer lines, right? I mean, all of this, I think, was very theoretical and abstract. And I think one of the things that she did was give a name to what happens when, you know, the person that she was running against was also tasked with running the election, right? That was just wrong from the get-go. And I think one of the things that she has helped to do, and it's also worth flagging here, that, you know, after she became a rock star, she was offered, you know, all sorts of things. I think she had the possibility of being, you know, Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential running mate. She was, you know, floated as a Supreme Court nominee, and she didn't want any of it. She just wanted to go back to Georgia and finish what she started. 
And also, I think, as you say, to really, really help people understand that whether she won or not wasn't the point. The point was that massive vote suppression means that democracy is being thwarted. And I think in that sense, she would say whether she wins this race or not, the fact that we all now have names for what it is that happens when, you know, Georgia passes a law that says you can't bring water to someone standing in a line, that is a credit to Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there is a direct line to be drawn from someone like Stacey Abrams in a modern context back to someone like Polly Murray, who is uh, another woman that you write about in the book. Tell us tell us more about her. She's less well known than uh, Stacey Abrams is. Right. Polly Murray has become my obsession. And for listeners um, who are curious about Polly Murray, there's an amazing documentary called My Name is Polly Murray that came out about a year and a half ago that is absolutely, I think, something to put on your must see. And you're quite correct. Uh, Polly Murray, to me, also is an avatar of the difference between how women and men organize, how they kind of claw democracy out of the rock face of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And so Pauline Murray is, first of all, I think today would probably want to be called they. I think Polly Murray was quite certain uh, that she was uh, a boy in a woman's body long before there was language for that. Mm. But Polly Murray was descended on one side from slaves, on the other side from slaveholders. And Polly Murray, even before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus, Polly Murray had done it in Virginia. Even before people were desegregating lunch counters, Polly Murray had done it in Washington. Washington, D.C., Polly Murray wrote as a law school paper, not being able to get into the law school of her choice, uh, got into Howard and wrote a paper that became the bones of the paper of the lawsuit that became Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Not credited anywhere. <laughs> she found out <laughs> years later. Uh, Polly Murray also is credited by Ruth Bader Ginsburg as being the visionary who helped Ginsburg file her first briefs on using the 14th Amendment to pursue gender equality. And so, in a sense, Polly Murray is everywhere in the kind of constitutional and legal history of gender equality, racial equality, and yet history is completely erased, Polly Murray, with few exceptions. And so I'm obsessed with who gets famous and who doesn't, who gets credit and who doesn't. And for me, Polly Murray is really symbolic in this book of all of the people who are out toiling in the vineyards, doing the work, doing the work, doing the work, not getting the credit, but nevertheless changing the world. Yeah, yeah. And, and part of the reason I bring her up is I think there's something in sort of in the background of all of these stories that that deserves fronting. And that's that uh, the, there are these ki- kind of connections and um, uh, maybe daisy chaining is the word uh, that, that I'm looking for here, you know, among these these women, many of whom didn't, of course, know each other. Uh, as you point out, Polly Murray is is largely forgotten by by history. But th- there is this kind of standing on the shoulders of, uh, you know, the work that comes before that that we see in lots of other contexts that's really important here. And, uh, you know, someone like Polly Murray, who does not get the credit that she deserves, nonetheless, 
sits, you know, somewhere in in the foundation of uh, what what Ruth Bader Ginsburg is able to do, what Stacey Abrams is able to do, what Sonia Sotomayor is able to do. I think that's right. And I think it's also important to say that every time I ever interviewed RBG, she would make that very point, mm. right? She would always say, I stand on the shoulder of giants. And she would credit Pauli Murray, and she would credit Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and she would credit, you know, the people who came before, some of whom history remembered and history forgot. And Ketanji Brown-Jackson, by the way, did exactly the same thing Mm -hmm. uh, when President Biden nominated her, sort of listed the black women who had come before, none of whom, you know, have tote bags and mugs and, you know, (laughs) seven, you know, documentary Netflix movies, but all of whom did the work. And maybe what I would say is this. I think that there's one version of American history that is, you know, John Adams and and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And we talk about these great, great men in vacuums, right, as though they single-handedly did everything. And I think that's very male story. And it's also, you know, Rebecca Solnit, the great philosopher and political thinker, has an amazing essay that I cite in the book where she says, you know, when the hero is the problem, because you get very invested in Robert Mueller is going to save us, you know, and Merrick Garland is going to save us. And we just like pop up some popcorn and wait for Adam Schiff to save us. And I think that that needs to be counter-programmed by the story you just described, which is Hmm. most of democracy happens when good people work in obscurity or near obscurity, get no credit, change everything, and and we move on from their work and build on it. And so I want to posit this both as a women's story, right, because I think women didn't get a lot of credit. A handful of them did. You know, we're very good about a few of the women who got the vote and a few of the women who have been seminal in reproductive justice. But I think one of the things I wanted to tell in this book is a woman's story of huge movements of women, mm. some of whom devote their life to justice and freedom work and don't get credit and posit that as a much, much better story for how we all have to have skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to I want to pitch for calls again. They get some of our calls involved. Uh, give us a call. Tell us about your female heroes, people who inspire you, who work uh, in the law or in politics. Tell us how the last six years has maybe changed the way you see that kind of activism. Are you more active now? Are you more motivated to become involved uh, at the community level, at the political level, at the legal level uh, than you were before. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Brian and Royal Oak could not stay on the line, but wanted to talk about the fact that uh, you know Trump was not uh, elected by a majority of the population um, in this country and yet got to appoint three Supreme Court justices who will serve uh, until they decide not to. Uh, he says that uh, that's that makes this court somewhat illegitimate. That's a, a conversation we're having, and it does get to this question of um, of populations that have not had 
power uh, for most of the, the time this country has existed and the effect on, on us uh, that, that looks different from, from other people. But this kind of piling on of, um, of, of, of power uh, that we saw, and some of it's just happenstance, right? But, but the way it works and the way that it will affect politics uh, and law for populations who don't have a, a way um, to, to, to counter that is, is, is significant. I think that's right. And I think, you know, Brian's question in some sense goes exactly to the concern that a lot of people have, not just about the Supreme Court, but as he says, about the Electoral College, right, about a Senate that is so wildly malapportioned that tens of millions of people uh, are represented, you know, by by fewer uh, senators, right? And I think that one of the kind of slightly glib answers I have to that is that this system is working exactly as it was designed to do, right? This was not a system that was designed by the framers to make sure that every vote counted. Uh, You know, people, including people of color and women, were not seen as people at all. And I think we have to be very mindful of the fact that in some ways the system that was designed to privilege, you know, rural white slaveholding men is still doing versions of that today. And so I think you're exactly right. There's a historic basis for this, that we need to think about structural reform. And maybe the best answer to that is, you know, there are very smart, good people doing work to fix the Electoral College, right, to fix the Electoral Count Act, to fix structurally the Supreme Court so that we don't have lifetime appointments without checks to make sure there are ethics rules that are binding on the Supreme Court. All of this work to make it more representative and fair to kind of counter the historic trends that Mm -hmm. you're pointing out, all of that is being done. But that's, again, why the book lands on Stacey Abrams. This is structural kind of drudgery. This is not sexy, you know, work. This is not the the work of one election or two. It is the work of saying, how do we fix the Senate so that everybody, you know, is represented? How do we fix the Electoral College so that we don't have, as we've had in case after case, presidents who lose the majority of the election and still get to appoint Supreme Court justices who sit for life. So I think, in a sense, this has been a revelation about structural failures to really promote the voices of everyone and the interests of everyone. But the good news is, in a book that's about, you know, doing the work, this work is being done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue talking about uh, some of the heroes that Dahlia Lithwick points out and highlights in her book, Lady Justice. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social, Ed and Robert in Detroit. We will get to you next as well. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Hang in there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. We 
We've got Dahlia Lithwick with us this hour on Detroit Today. She covers the courts and the law for Slate, hosts the podcast Amicus, and is author of a new book, Lady Justice. Uh, We're talking about uh, the power that women are grabbing for themselves in our politics and our culture and in law, uh, especially after the Trump administration and the years that uh, he pushed a really authoritarian agenda. I want to hear from you as well about your heroes, people uh, who inspire you, women who inspire you by the things that they're doing in the law and in politics uh, in our culture. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work into the conversation. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. Yes. Uh, your guest's uh, conversation or your conversation with your guest has brought to mind a judge who um, were life different in the 1960s, might have been the first black woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of Constance Baker Motley. Yes. Who I think uh, few people remember her today, but one can only say that she was a trailblazer. And Justice Jackson, the second Justice Jackson, clearly stands on Judge Motley's shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, appointed, I think, by President Johnson to the federal bench. I think that's right. Um, Dahlia, how, how familiar are you with uh, Judge, uh, Judge Motley? Well, also, um, it's just worth flagging that uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson name-checked uh, Constance Baker Motley uh, at uh, the announcement of uh, her own mm-hmm. nomination. So she really explicitly um, said that uh, she owed her own history, uh, her historical nomination to Constance Baker Motley. And you're exactly right. She was... Um, appointed to the district court for the Southern District of New York in 1966. Uh, she was a graduate of Columbia Law School, which is, you know, the first African-American woman a- appointed to the federal bench by LBJ. And I think it's, in fact, true that she, um, you know, was was another legendary figure that but for, you know, the vagaries of, of who could be nominated and who couldn't and who could succeed and who couldn't uh, would have been uh, an amazing uh, first African-American woman on the court. And just going back to Polly Murray, I have to note parenthetically, because it's funny that even though we just had a conversation about Polly Murray as sort of lost uh, to the vapors of history, Polly Murray was no shrinking violet. Polly Murray wrote a note to Richard Nixon saying, I know you're looking for the first woman nominee to the bench. Might I suggest me? Mm. <laughs> um, and, and really like made a pitch for herself as the first person, needless to say, Nixon did not choose any women. Yeah. But I think that that's the kind of sort of self-promoting and pushiness you almost had to have to succeed. And it is, in fact, true that I love that the first thing Judge Jackson said at her own um, Mm. announcement was that she stood on the shoulders of Judge Motley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, The timing of her appointment to the federal bench also is important because it's just a few years later uh, that 
President Johnson uh, elevates Thurgood Marshall uh, to the to the Supreme Court, and I, I suppose it could have been it could have been Judge Motley just as just as easily she was not on the appeals court, but. Uh, um, th- th- that that's a time when there is this opportunity getting uh, that's expanding and and uh, there again you know Thurgood Marshall is of course uh, much more remembered than than Judge Motley but it, I guess it could have been the other way around. And she worked on you know for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund she worked on Brown v. Board Brown, alongside right. him so I think it's Again, you know, I, I guess this goes back to this theme of we get very, very fussed about who, you know, history tells us are our heroes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but by the grace of God, it could have been uh, Judge Motley becoming Justice Motley. And the work that she did was as seminal as the work uh, that Thurgood Marshall and Polly Murray and everyone else who worked on Brown. So I think we have to be just so, so mindful that our heroes are often avatars for the many, many heroes yep. that we don't know about. Yeah. So, uh, Deborah and Ham Tramek called in. She's a little sore, I think, at me, maybe. She says, uh, how dare you not mention the League of Women Voters? Nobody out there is working harder. Uh, obviously, Dahlia, I know you know that. But uh, but talk about the role that the League and other longstanding organizations are playing in this post-Trump uh, pushback and kind of expansion of women's activism. I mean, the league is phenomenal. We could listen. I mean, we could talk about one group after another after another, and every single one of them would still allow us to forget hundreds of other groups. And so (laughs) I also want to apologize because there's just no way to cover everything. But I think, you know, even in Michigan, what you are seeing is this groundswell of, you know, the signatures on the ballot for the referendum Mm -hmm. uh, post-Dobbs is the work of largely women activists who went out on the streets and got a record number of signatures and, you know, just organized and pushed. And I think, you know, whether it's the League of Women Voters or any number of extraordinary groups, not just of women, of men as well, and, and, you know, all sorts of allies across every other sort of denomination. But I think that the important thing is seeing this resurgence of activism and understanding mm. that the enemy here is cynicism, right? The enemy is saying the fix is in, the system is broken, you know, my vote doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I organize, it doesn't matter if I get people uh, to register because the whole thing is is uh, a fraud. And think about, you know, the former President Trump just making remarks saying, we're never even going to know who wins in 2024. The election is already rigged and stolen. Like, right. that is the message of cynicism and nihilism. And so all of the groups we're talking about today who are in the face of that, doubling down on their commitment to activism and voting, I think it's the work of just sheer heroism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, uh, Deborah, appreciate the call and the comment. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, you already mentioned Stacey Abrams. To me, she's, she should be up for sainthood, but um, she's not the one I wanted to talk about mostly. Um, I'm really excited about um, Justice Brown. But um, I think um, it would be great to see someone like Barbara McQuaid replace someone like Clarence Thomas. Mm. Mm. And I do want to mention real quickly that during the last elections, when, when I heard about Marianne Williamson, I thought she was a crackpot. But the more I listened, the more I thought, man, she is amazing. 
and I really like that that perspective was introduced in all of the all of the people running um, for the nomination on the Democratic side. They they presented different perspectives, and I, I like that variety. Yeah, yeah, Robert, uh, appreciate the call and the and the comments. Uh, I know Dahlia that you know of Barbara McQuaid, and you may even fact uh, know her. She was our uh, our U.S. attorney here for for years, and has become a real voice again in response to some of the things that uh, that President Trump did uh, for uh, women in the law. I mean, and and protecting uh, the issues that that matter to women and other. Uh, disenfranchised groups. Uh, it'd be great to see her replace Clarence Thomas on, on the Supreme Court. Not that we think he's leaving anytime soon, or wishing ill on him. But uh, but that would be an interesting that would be an interesting switch for sure. I, I'm a huge fan of Barb McQuaid, and I'm also just you know mindful of the fact that you know Jocelyn Benson, Gretchen Widmer. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many. Um, I think women who have been at the sort of leading edge and, and in the face of, you know, we should say like real vigilantism, real threats, threats of violence. I mean, this is not enviable work. And I love Robert's you know question or comment because it really goes to this theme that I'm trying to pull on here, which is there are names in the book, you know, Becca Heller that people haven't heard of, Vanita Gupta that people haven't heard of. But every one of them is kind of a Barb McQuaid. You know, mm-hmm. every one of them is somebody who, in the face of, as I said, you know, kind of real existential worry that if law goes away, women are on the front lines of who will be sort of subjugated and who will be, um, you know, made to feel vulnerable. So many amazing women just said, you know what, I'm not going to like stay home. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to like gird my loins and get in the fight. And I think that that is a singular historic thing that should be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got about a minute left, but I want to have give you a chance to talk about it is First Monday. This is a term I think that uh, may not have a parallel in, in history when it's done. Uh, there's a lot of trepidation about what the justices could do. Yeah, I mean, I think what I've been saying, Stephen, is that everything that wasn't on the docket last year is on the docket is now. now. Yeah. So we've got affirmative action. We've got partisan gerrymandering. We've got a racial uh, gerrymander out of Alabama. We've got, you know, LGBTQ rights that can be set aside by somebody who doesn't want to provide wedding services. And probably the most important case we're going to have on elections law with something called the independent state legislature district that I cannot possibly do in under a minute. (laughs) But I think I would also say that the other big theme of this term, in my view, is that the machine has no brakes. I mean, there's just no braking mechanism on the court right now. And given the option to go big or go home, they seem to be apt to go very, very big. It's yeah. going to be quite a term. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, it's always really great to have you here with us uh, on Detroit Today. Congratulations on the book, and uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the like deep, deep read of the material. It means the world to me. Thank yeah, you. It's a wonderful read. Thanks for being here. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we are going to continue discussing the beginning of the U.S. Supreme Court's new term. We're going to preview some of the cases and talk about the huge impact that they could have on our democracy. 
This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.